Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you think there's sex in heaven? Of course. I mean, it's heaven. Now, before some of you stand up and leave uh, this church building, uh, I'm quoting um, a commercial. Uh, I have not seen this new TV series yet, but apparently it's a popular one. It's called Pivoting, and the premise is four uh, girlfriends, and uh, they're young, and one of them suddenly passes away, and it forces the three uh, that are remaining to uh, rethink their lives. And so they're sitting at her gravesite, and they're having this existential dialogue about the meaning of life, and one of the girls says, do you think there's sex in heaven? And the other one replies, of course, I mean, it's heaven. Now, what she's getting at uh, is what our culture believes uh, and is that our sexual identity is ultimate. Our culture in general, really, the, as far as they'll go in terms of their deepest sense of identity is their sexuality. And sexual happiness is uh, esteemed by our culture as sort of the pinnacle of happiness and joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And so based on that sense of our deepest identity is our sexual identity, then we live out our outer lives, our outer identity. But what our culture fails to remember uh, is that, no, there's something deeper and beyond our sexuality, and that's our soul, uh, the identity of our soul, our inner person. Now, let me clarify there as well and be as precise as I can. We don't define who we are on the inside either in terms of our soul. No, we're, we're created by God. And he defined humanity in the beginning, in his image, male and female, he created them. But nevertheless, because we don't go beyond our sexuality to really think of eternal matters and how our existence, our identity goes beyond this life to the next after death, we become uh, short-sighted and we lose the true meaning. And so we, we neglect the soul and our culture uh, ends at sexual identity. Now, one way we could just summarize all of what's going on there is that, and it's definitely the spirit of the age, we loved our writing our own self-narrative. We want to be authors uh, of our own life, to pen our own life, and so we have a self-narrative. Now, this is nothing new. It actually goes all the way back to the fall. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve, one way you can summarize why they fell, how they fell, and what they fell into uh, is that they desired to write their own story, their own narrative. And that's why Paul um, diagnoses humanity, the human condition, and it's the same from Adam and Eve all the way to the present, and he diagnoses it in another letter to the Christians in Rome, 
And he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the part I want you to uh, really catch. Because they exchanged the truth. They exchanged God's story. God's narrative. The one true, eternally lasting narrative that's supposed to shape and influence and determine our story. And they exchanged that for a lie. And this is really just a synonym for our own story our self-narrative. And so we worship, end up worshiping the creature and creation, ourselves and all the things of the world and, rather than the creator. And so again, um, just to repeat some things from last week, but it's so important that it's worth just coming back to, it's important to understand God's gospel narrative. Uh, just the overall arc of the story that he's writing. And so really you can think of it as the table of contents of history. And so back at creation, when God created Adam and Eve and this universe and the earth, before sin, there was God's definition of self. God defined us in his image, male and female, he created us. And that's the first chapter, but then the second chapter we know Adam and Eve fell. There was fallen creation, and as I said, really you could boil that down to, I want to define myself. I want to define myself. So I I want us to really chew on this uh, as sort of um, setting the stage for for just going back into Ephesians. Um, And today what I want to do, to just elaborate on from last week, I want to really identify the essence of, of Adam and Eve's disobedience and their fall, okay? And it's important that we identify with this if the gospel is going to have any uh, value to us. The essence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was short-sightedly idolizing, and let's just pause there. We could really just even stop there and say the essence of how and why Adam and Eve fell is because they had a gargantuan eternal... Uh, eternal consequence, short-sightedness. All they could focus on was what was right in front of them. The tree, the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. It was beautiful and what it represented, that they could be like God and wisdom and the tastefulness of it. Everything from their senses to their spirit, they were only looking at things in a short-sighted manner and they began to idolize it. Idolize basically means making something or someone else God in the place of God. And looking to that for all the things that we should look to God for. Our happiness, our strength, our motivation, etc. On and on and on. And so, the essence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was short-sightedly idolizing the immediate. What was right in front of them over the eternal. I want you to understand that in that first original covenant of works, before sin entered, Adam and Eve and humanity were to live eternally. There was no death. There was no disease. And it would have been a good life eternally. But they idolized the immediate over the eternal. The essence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was also short-sightedly idolizing uh, what I'll refer to as bread alone, over the word. I know Adam and Eve, it was fruit. But now when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness before his public ministry, Satan comes and 
and trying to lead Jesus down the same path as Adam and Eve. He tempts Jesus with bread to satisfy his cravings, his hunger, uh, his weakness with bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Adam and Eve's bread was fruit, yes, but the idea is the same. And they short-sightedly idolized that food, that fruit or bread, over God's word. God had spoken. God had blessed them. God had given a clear commandment. He made his covenant with Adam and Eve clear. To go and multiply, be fruitful, cultivate the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And life would be good. And their relationship with God was perfect and perfect intimacy. And so they short-sightedly idolized bread alone over God's word. But also, the essence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was short-sightedly idolizing what we'll call self-sovereignty over the one true sovereign. 1 Timothy 6.15 says that there is the only sovereign, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. And certainly, right now, in this moment in history, we can understand and appreciate the whole notion of sovereignty because there's a war because some, one country is, is, is offending another country's sovereignty. And so this notion that you rule. And so Adam and Eve, what they short-sightedly idolized was them wanting to be like God, to write their own story, to write their own narrative, to make their own rules. And they lost sight of the only sovereign, the one true sovereign. Now, I'll say, just as a quick aside, um, even the notion of nations being sovereign, I, I do believe ultimately, biblically, that's even a bit of a human delusion. It, it, it's, it's, it's a vestige of humans wanting to continue in their self-sovereignty as if we are sovereign in and of ourselves. Yes, there are nations and kings and queens and there's jurisdiction and, and authority being um, uh, delegated but the point is, there's only one true sovereign, Jesus Christ, ultimately. And any other kind of authority that we have on this earth is because we have a certain responsibility and role to fill, but it's not because we, in and of ourselves, are sovereign. But that's what Adam and Eve were tempted by, and they short-sightedly idolized. And finally, the essence of Adam and Eve's disobedience was short-sightedly idolizing, and we've been saying it over and over again, I've been saying it, uh, so far, this whole notion of personal narrative over the one true gospel narrative. Now, before the fall, there was still a gospel. The gospel was, for God so loved the world, period. There was wonderful news. God had created the universe, the earth, and Adam and Eve, and blessed them to go and live life wonderfully in communion with God and with one another and to uh, fulfill the covenant. And so that was the good news. But of course they fell, and so we have the gospel in Jesus Christ that we need as well. For God so loved the world, and now he sent his only son, because we need forgiveness of sins through him. So here's another sort of big point that I, I want you to, to really get with me this morning. Apart from Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, we are all sons and daughters of disobedience. By the mere fact that we are humans that we are descendants as a human being of Adam and Eve, we are born with this 
state of being sons and daughters of disobedience. And this is something that Paul himself uh, teaches us in Ephesians. If you'll recall in chapter 2, verse 2, but also as we'll see in either next week or the week after, chapter 5, verse 6, all those apart from Christ, outside of Christ, we have this tendency in our hearts. This is our natural DNA, our spiritual soul DNA, even through our bodies, our, our DNA, because of Adam and Eve. Now, as sons and daughters of disobedience, then, what I want us to recognize and to eat some humble pie and be willing to admit and to, to answer the call and conviction of the Holy Spirit is that we continue, like Adam and Eve, to short-sightedly idolize the immediate sensuality, meaning what's just right in front of us and what we long for our stomachs to be satisfied with and to satisfy our physical cravings and so forth, and we continue to short-sightedly idolize our own narrative and our own self-sovereignty, writing our own story. We've inherited this. And in our fallenness, as sons and daughters of disobedience, our sexuality, as part of that fall and consequence of now being a son and daughter of disobedience, was indefinitely disoriented. Indefinitely. Apart from Christ, it's broken. And it becomes now a means to live out our broken self. Now, I can't emphasize enough, um, let, let me put it this way, just in my years of ministry, 20 plus years or so, um, I used to say the number one uh, weakness or, or shortfall of, of humans is lack of self-awareness. And I still stand by that. And maybe a cousin of that, and preparing for this week's sermon kind of brought me to this conclusion and development. It's not only self lack of self-awareness, but short-sightedness. Short-sightedness. That is deeply ingrained in us as humans. Even the best retirement planner, an executor, and someone who can actually save up for retirement and live the, their twilight years on this, this earth well, if they don't think of their life after this life, after death, and making an account to their maker, then they are still short-sighted. And that's so ingrained in our human, our, broken, our brokenness, our broken soul. Now, part of all that is how we live out our sexuality. And so, um, explained last week that now in our fallenness, the purpose that sexuality has taken out is to basically live out my definition of self. And so, we pursue self-satisfaction through sexuality, whether it be uh, just, um, you know, just raw lust or what we define as love, but oftentimes love is not even so much self-sacrificial love, but self-serving love. We want the romance and the fairy tale, fairy tale stories so we can feel not empty. Certainly self-expression, and that's the banner cry of the LGBTQ plus community, but um, if I may just add more letters, LGBTQ plus EE. And what do I mean by EE? Because it's not just the LGBTQ uh, plus community, but E-E standing for E, uh, emotional issues. Even if you're heterosexual, a lot of times where our sexuality um, in its brokenness gets played out is just playing out whatever emotional issues there are. And so there's the stereotypical um, just narrative of, of 
sex being a play, place for power to be played out, as an example. And so whatever emotional issues, even as a heterosexual, it becomes a way to self-express our broken self and the way we want to define ourselves. And the other E stands for extramarital. And so even I have, uh, sadly, a friend in, in my life that uh, has broken their marriage because extramarital affair, but his reasoning being, I was just so lonely. And so because of emotional issues, now going outside of the marriage. But again, for him, a self-expression, that he feels self-justified. Of course, self-propagation, because for some of us, and this is really a vestige of the first covenant of works, and we'll get to it more deeply in a moment, but in the covenant of works, the mandate was to reproduce. And so it's built into how God has created us to long for, to want to, to almost need our name to continue. And of course, sexuality is used to promote ourselves, to level up. And it still happens in the workplaces and to uh, increase in social status and so forth. And so my prayer for all of us is, is it's going to be the same as last week, this week, and most likely next week. But just as a summary and sort of the, the big aim of what, what I hope will be stirred in your heart by faith. Lord, help me trust love, and pursue the vision of your gospel narrative as opposed to my own personal story. Your great story in Jesus Christ. Let me trust that. Let me love that. And let me pursue that. And so let's get into the gospel narrative. What's God's gospel story, his overarching, truest, um, uh, overarching story for history and our lives. Now, one way to apply that, and I encourage you to make a habit of this. How does blank fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? How does blank, whatever aspect of life, recreation, money, um, food, and, and on and on and on, ambition, on and just name something that is a part of life, and we should be able to, as Christ followers, be able to think through how this plays into, how this integrates to living out our lives uh, transformed by the gospel and for God's glory. And so today, I want to just touch on uh, sexuality a little bit more, and then we will get to singleness, okay? So how does sexuality fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? And so now let's get to Ephesians 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this is the part that we're really going to chew on today and, and Paul's explanation. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, on the surface, this is pointing to uh, God institutionalizing human marriage, physical marriage, flesh and blood, and let's not, you know, just be honest, this two shall become one flesh is referring to that wonderful, beautiful sexual union between husband and wife in covenant. But that, that beautiful act of sexual union. Now, what I want you to notice, especially today then, while the first surface meaning uh, of verse 31 is the marriage, the marriage bed, and the marriage covenant, Paul says, actually, the deepest, truest meaning of even this phrase referring to the marriage bed, that this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even this statement of sex 
it refers to Christ and the church. So let's be clear first here. Paul is not some, you know, thinking in a perverted manner or kinky manner or some way. He's not envisioning this physical act between Jesus and the church. But that's why he says this mystery is profound. On one hand, that's how short-sighted we are as human beings that it's hard for us or we blush or we giggle. You know, what's, what's Paul saying here? That there's sex between the, the church and Christ? Because if you just take it literally, then that's what he's getting at. But obviously Paul is saying that there is, to put it sort of in a kind of reflective, philosophical, provocative way, there's something, that there's a sexuality that's even deeper than sexuality. And we'll get to that. Well, I'll, I'll say what I mean by that in a moment. Now, the first thing is sort of, or next practical implication is this. We're just really going to chew on what Paul means but I'm referring to Christ and the church. And so here's the first thought. Jesus Christ redeems us from our innate short-sightedness to eternally-minded affections. And as I said, Paul is saying as this, that description and the two shall become one flesh ultimately is a description of Christ and the church. Paul is saying that sex ultimately isn't about sex. The two shall become one flesh is that Christ is the head and the church, his bride, is his body. And in that sense, they become one flesh, one body. And so the sexuality that's greater than sexuality that Paul is getting at when he says this refers to Christ and the church is that there is such an intimacy, a union, a closeness, uh, a, a profound and perfect relationship between God and his people that goes beyond the physical closeness that a husband and wife feel or or two people feel as they engage in sex. See, if you want to get, just trying to get to the meaning of even sexuality, the whole point, and, and, and when sexuality is most beautiful, even when it comes to human marriage, that husband and wife, the two shall become one flesh, it's speaking of this profound mystery, even between husband and wife, that even though they're two separate people, it's not like when two people get married and, and they consummate their marriage that all of a sudden they be morph into one person, like one body. No. They're still two independent human beings, but on every level, because of their deepest intimacy expressed through that physical union, it's also expressing the fact that they are also even becoming entwined in personality and emotions and thoughts and goals and hopes and dreams and, and, and just doing life together. See, sexuality, the sexuality that's greater than sexuality is the purest, truest, deepest intimacy. Relational intimacy. Not physical intimacy, but relational intimacy. And so even in the human marriage, a healthy sexuality really is just a blossom of a deeper intimacy between husband and wife. And this is how it can make perfect sense to think, okay, what does Paul mean that this refers to Christ and the church? 
we as broken human beings can't, can't even imagine it well. How close that God wants to be with his people. In Revelation 21, when it says that God will dwell with man and man will now be with God forever in the new creation, we have no idea how close God wants to be with us and what that will actually mean and feel like and, and how we'll experience that. And so, going back to pivoting, that show, on one hand, this lady and her answer is somewhat correct. Somewhat. Not literally correct. She's literally incorrect. And just another side note, too. It, it's, it's sad that, that people just kind of speculate. Oh, what's heaven like? What's, what's God like? They just make up their own ideas. This is our culture. But it's sad because we have the answers. We just need to take the time to read Scripture, to receive God's revelation to us through Jesus Christ, through His Word. But where she's just a smidgen of, uh, you know, there's a smidgen of truth to what she's saying is, in the new creation, we'll be so close to God and to one another that it will be closer than how close you can feel if you sleep with someone. That's the profound meaning of Christ and the church, that the two will become one flesh. I like how John Piper puts it. Um, he says, you know, for those especially singles who have sexual tensions and desires, uh, and you know you want to be married, and, and there's strong desires, and when it comes to thinking, if you had the choice, well, would I rather have, you know, just pass away now and be able to be with the Lord and those singles instead who say, but no, Lord, I, I, I want to experience marriage and family and, and that kind of intimacy before you call me home. And, and John Piper compares that to the ocean versus a thimbleful. We don't realize that being with Christ and the new creation is like having the ocean. <laughs> and yet we're so fixated on just this little thimbleful. That's how short-sighted we are. And we have to understand that, that our intimacy with God and with one another, relational, perfect intimacy and relationship will be like the ocean compared to all the sex you could have on earth. And so, just really chewing on these verses because there's a reason why we can chew on this for three weeks because as Paul says, this mystery is profound. There's endless implication and meaning and theology and just encouragement for our lives here on earth as singles and uh, as married folk. And so the two shall become one. Paul is ultimately speaking to the future reality of Christ and the church. And so here are some more just practical implications then and just how this plays out in real life. Jesus Christ redeems the over-expectation and frustration of broken sexuality, both in singleness and marriage, by redefining ultimate reality. Okay? When, when Paul says, and his, his final definitive statement, this is actually about Christ and the church, what he's saying, in other words, 
is that human marriage no longer is ultimate. He is saying that. And that there's a real marriage, a better marriage, a truer marriage that we should all be hoping for and looking forward to. He's redefining what feels ultimately real to us and most important. And so while we're on earth, and both singles and married, let's confess where we've been idolizing marriage or sex and physical pleasure, the, the, the immediate and sensuality. Let's admit and confess where we've been, we've been idolizing that and putting too much expectation on those things to give us happiness. And let's be real with the frustration of broken sexuality, even in the best marriages, by understanding that God, by saying through Paul, but this refers to Christ and the church, the truest marriage, the truest intimacy is Christ and the church. That's what we should be looking forward to. And all our over-expectation and frustration of whatever brokenness in this life, it if it comes under that story, then we begin to find hope and healing and peace even as we navigate the brokenness. That's why Jesus himself, Jesus himself, he's the authority on this, the final authority. He says in Matthew twenty-two thirty, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus saying definitively there's no physical sex between husband and wife. There is no husband and wife in the new creation. Why? We won't need it anymore because we will experience an intimacy with God and with one another that doesn't require physical union. And so to put it another way, again, the whole ocean versus thimble idea, uh, thimbleful, heaven is better than sex. So what we need to understand is that our real life, it's real. All the tensions you feel as a single and your desires, even as a married person, trying to stay faithful to that covenant and have eyes only and, and emotions and affections only for your spouse, and all the tensions and temptations you may feel as there's someone attractive at work and so forth, or someone a bit more emotionally, naturally connecting with you in conversation and, and gets your jokes and laughs at your jokes more than your spouse, all those real tensions, that they're real, but nevertheless, everything on earth, especially pre-fall, God gave to us as a metaphoric experience. It's a real experience, but it was meant to teach us something greater than this life. And it's supposed to be an experience that helps us understand our relationship with God all the more. God all the more. So that's why it's important to understand the gospel narrative, just the table of contents of history, to know, okay, God created Adam and Eve. He defined us. And the whole point of that, even Adam and Eve from creation, from the onset, was meant to be a beautiful metaphor. Real life, real experience, but nevertheless, even that real life being something pointing to even something more real, ultimately, eternally real, which is the new creation and Christ finishing our new self in Him, making us His new creation, uh, sanctifying us, purifying us, making us blameless by His blood and righteousness, and receiving us as His bride. And so Jesus Christ, 
redeems the over-expectation and frustration of broken sexuality by redefining the only ultimately worthwhile intimacy. And he does this through the new covenant. Okay? He does this through the new covenant of grace. So this leads us naturally to asking then, how does singleness fit into the vision of God's gospel narrative? And so again here, again, we're just chewing on this. There's so much here. We're just chewing on, on this statement here. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Even in this statement, there's profound, practical encouragement and application to singles. And what we need to uh, just wrap our heads around, what we want to compare is really just another sort of framework, trustworthy framework in life to make sense of life. All of life apart from Christ is the covenant of works. We won't get into it, but you can understand why the world runs the way it does as people are trying to outperform each other, outpower each other, outsovereign each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we want to compare is singleness and marriage in the covenant of works, and especially uh, as it was broken in fallen creation, versus now singleness and marriage in the new covenant of grace and in redeemed creation, okay? And so we'll say this first. Jesus, he redeems the brokenness of marriage by reprioritizing human marriage in the new covenant. This is what Paul means when he says, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. He's taking those words in creation of God institutionalizing human marriage, and yes, there's still wisdom and guidelines and parameters and moral vision for marriage, human marriage, but now what Paul is saying is no, but now in the new covenant, Christ and the church, human marriage, physical marriage, is completely reprioritized. Put it this way, in the old covenant of works, the only way you could faithfully keep covenant with God, this is even before sin, is to be fruitful and multiply. And so I'm willing to say strongly, uh, my argument is that in the old covenant of works, singleness was never permanent. Yes, you're born as a single. And, you know, if Adam and Eve, uh, they didn't fall, they didn't sin, and they still had Cain and Abel, um, they would not be single forever. They would eventually marry and be fruitful and multiply. And so to be faithful to that original covenant, you would have to be married. And this makes sense if you just kind of look at culture from a 30,000-foot view, why traditional cultures hold on to and, and, and idolize marriage so much. And so maybe some of you still have parents, if you're single, who are bugging you and nagging you. When are you going to get married? Isn't there someone good? You're too picky. When are you going to give me grand... Or if you're married, when are you going to give me grandkids? <laughs> and so forth. This is because that old covenant works is still on our hearts. And the way to fulfill that covenant would be to be married, to produce progeny, and to be fruitful and multiply. But what Christ has done and what Paul is saying, that is no longer... God has reprioritized human marriage in the new covenant. And human marriage is no longer mandated as it was in the old covenant. 
And so Jesus Christ redeems the brokenness of singleness. And what I mean by brokenness of singleness is not that you'll, you'll see in a point. So let me just read this first. He redeems the brokenness of singleness by reprioritizing human marriage. Again, I'm saying the same thing, but it has an implication for singles because singleness is a legitimate life in the new covenant. What I mean by the brokenness of singleness is that if we're honest, even those with the gift of ability to remain single, there's still warring desires in your heart. And there still might be desire to be married. And so meaning, it's not just a bed of roses to be single, even as a Christ follower. But singleness is equally a legitimate life in the new covenant. Because by Paul saying, this refers to Christ and the church, he's saying once and for all that what is the realest marriage, the truest marriage, is Christ and the church, not human marriage any longer. Just to prove the point all the more, God, he predicts this, he prophesies this, even through Isaiah in the Old Testament. And so just to pick up here, and let not in Isaiah chapter 56, this is a, a, for, a prophecy of the new creation, and let not the eunuch, and for all argument's sake, the single, say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, the singles, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. You see, the old covenant of works, even through Abraham and so forth, what did it all um, hinge on? It hinged on progeny. It hinged on offspring, physical offspring. That's the old covenant. But now through Jesus, there is a new covenant of grace, and now progeny is spiritual. We're to go and make disciples. We're to see people come to faith in Christ and be born again, as Jesus says, in spirit. And so where in the old covenant you idolize your legacy, you idolize your, especially in patriarchy, your last name, the male name, carrying on. Now in the new covenant, that is radically exploded apart. And God will give us a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall, be, uh, that shall not be cut off. And what is that name? course, to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we see in the Bible itself, just to point out a few obvious examples, Jesus, Paul the Apostle, Anna the prophetess, who, who longed to see the Messiah and prayed day and night in the temple for the Messiah, uh, for God's redemptive plan to unfold. These are wonderfully esteemed singles that we can understand in the New Covenant. Just some contemporary um, Christian servants, fellow servants, John Stott, William MacDonald, two wonderful theological minds. Mother Teresa, a wonderful uh, example of service and self-sacrifice motivated by grace. And single, the singleness is a legitimate life in the New Covenant. Now, I want to make a pastoral sort of uh, exhortation here. 
And so one implication for this then is let's be very careful on one hand and very intentionally encouraging on the other hand of how married people and single people talk to one another. I, I feel even convicted to the point calling out married people if you speak in any way to put down a single, especially a single Christ follower, to make them feel less because they're not married, that is even sin. That, that, that doesn't understand the new covenant of grace. Okay? And we could imply this, uh, apply this as well to just the whole longing in our lives for children and grandchildren. It's not ultimate anymore. I know it's real. It's painful when you have those longings, but it's not ultimate. That's the profound implication of the new covenant. And so this has, we need to think through this as a community, how we show kindness and grace and hospitality to one another as married folk and singles. And we'll get more into that next week. But just to kind of encourage the singles, to try to land this plane and encourage the singles, uh, Paige Brown, uh, she's a, a sister in Christ serving uh, the Reformed University Fellowship in uh, the denomination that I'm ordained in, Presbyterian Church in America. She wrote a wonderful reflection and article on singleness, and these are just some quotes uh, from that uh, article. And so she does say, on the other hand, which, of course, I agree with here. Singleness is never carte blanche for selfishness either. Singleness has a very wonderful, noble calling in the new covenant, and it certainly is not just to become self-centered and self-pleasing. That's the world's way, where on one hand, traditional cultures, they idolize marriage and legacy and so forth. On the other hand, just the rebellious heart, what's natural to the rebellious heart, if, if um, God says uh, to be, you know, or, or sort of traditional culture saying, pressuring marriage, then we'll go the other way. No, and then I can live for myself, and, and that's the wrong extreme as well. And so singleness is never carte blanche for selfishness. A spouse also, on the other hand, is not sufficient countermeasure for self. Just because you get married doesn't all mean all of a sudden you're going to become this wonderful person. In fact, that's why a lot of marriages are struggling because it's two selfish sinners that don't know how to show grace to one another. And so the gospel is the only antidote for both, for single egocentricity and egocentricity in the married life. And she goes on to, uh, especially to exhort married folk who would talk down on singles. She points out four of her uh, greatest pet peeve comments that she hears. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Okay? You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. God is God. And he's sovereign. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. 
And what she's getting at is, no, even as a married person, you do the Lord's work wholeheartedly. Of course, there might be some more practical time, energy limitations, and Paul even points to that, but it's not an issue of wholeheartedness. And this fourth one, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. We know that's not, or Paige Brown is right because anyone can get married. (laughs) Anyone can have babies. And that's why there's a lot of trouble in our world, in our society. And so she sort of wraps up her article with this reflection. Let's face it. Singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs, nor is it superior in the new covenant. But I want to be married. This is her being very transparent. I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. And I'll add in an or I may never have another date because God is so good to me. You see, she's, she's convinced as a single in Christ that the realest family, the realest marriage, the realest romance is to know the spousal love of Christ, to be pursuing and putting her energy into Christ and the church and doing whatever she can until if she does get married one day, then so be it. And if she doesn't, so be it. And just to be satisfied in Christ. And so next week, we can look forward to um, what do I do as a single with the emotional needs and sexual tension I feel inside of me? Let's try, we, we, we want to, we pride ourselves at Trinity Grace Church trying to keep it real. We're not perfect. But let's keep it real as a single. And I remember those days for myself as well. But even as a married person, still have emotional needs and sexual tension, but especially as a single then, what do we do with the emotional needs and sexual tension that we feel inside of us? But until next week, can we pray this prayer together? Would you join me uh, in heart and voice? Lord, help me trust, love, and pursue the vision of your gospel narrative.